Our God is worthy of praise, worthy of honor. He is the one that we live for. He's the one that we sing to. At least we say that. And my prayer is that we would indeed, when we leave this place, that we would continue to live for him. Let's pray. Lord God, now as we open up your word, um, this strange but powerful practical passage of Scripture, I pray that you would help us to understand, Lord, that we need to be worshiping you in authenticity, in worshiping you the way that you have created us to be. We're going to thank you, Lord, for what your spirit is going to do in and through this passage to us. Prepare us, Lord, we pray. Open up our minds, open up our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it was a number of months ago when I read this passage in horror. Mark and I had been meeting for discipleship and accountability for many weeks before I read this passage, and it hit me the way it did. I'd read this passage that I'm about to share with you a number of times before, but it hit me like a ton of bricks this time. What Mark and I would do in our standard agenda when we meet together, we would be sharing from our journal entries, you know, what the Lord had shown us in the Scripture. And also we'd be testing one another as we would be, you know, helping one another to memorize the Scriptures. And uh, I needed a whole lot more help than Mark does (laughs) uh, when it comes to Scripture memory. But this particular week, I had to share my thoughts about Isaiah chapter 1, verses 12 to 15. Here's what he says. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon is Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. By the way, these are God's covenant people who are doing this. And so now, based upon the scripture, you know the backstory now of why I plead with all of us when we come in here on Sunday mornings, that we would be sure that we would be in the right place spiritually, that we would give God the honor and the glory, and that we would give him worship that he would accept. Again, these are God's covenant people. Fast forward to today. That's the Old Testament, right? Fast forward to today. If Jesus were to physically walk through the churches in our culture, what would he say? about the way we worship? Would he say, well done? Or would he say, say, I don't accept your attempt at worship? What would he say? My fear is that with many churches, including ours from time to time, he would say the latter. I don't accept your attempt to worship. When we stand before him on that day, what will he tell us? What we tell us, June 14th, is this 14th? Yeah, I think it is, or 12th, or whatever it is. Whatever date this is. What do you tell us? I didn't accept your worship on that day. So what does acceptable worship look like, though? What attitudes and actions need to be present as we engage in corporate worship that would, quote-unquote, prompt him to say, that pleases me? Wouldn't it be great if the Lord actually told us what that would be like? If he would give us like a manual to help us, a step-by-step checklist, as it were? Well, the fantastic news is that he has. He's done this. Yes, it's a scripture, but there's a certain passage, a certain portion of scripture that he has literally outlined for us that I'm convinced, a blueprint 
of what acceptable worship is to him. And that is found in 1 Corinthians 11, starting at verse 2, all the way to the end of chapter 14, 14 verse 40. What Paul has given us in these chapters gives us, I believe, a blueprint of sorts of the kind of corporate worship that the Lord accepts. Now, we might be thinking, and no one could blame us if we did, here in 1 Corinthians, this would be a blueprint for acceptable worship? In this letter, are you kidding me? Of all the problems that Paul had, and he was addressing, I should say, of all the problems that the Corinthians had, that God would actually lay out for us in this letter a blueprint for acceptable worship practices. But with all, on the other hand, though, if all the churches in the first century were living mature Christian lives, then Peter like, people like Peter and Paul and John, they wouldn't have anything to write about, would they? They would be talking about praise and worship, yes, but they would not be addressing issues and problems and failures and sins. And so here's the good news. The Lord doesn't waste anything, does he, in our lives, in anybody's life. See, Romans 8.28 is true, that God works all things together, including our sins, including our failures, all things together for good to those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And given all the problems that the Corinthians had, 2,000 years later, we are still gleaning extremely valuable stuff as Paul patiently instructs them in the ways of the Lord. These things were written down for us. And now that we have, and we have them in English, isn't that an amazing, marvelous thing that we have? We have the scriptures translated accurately. And so the chapters we have in front of us over the next few weeks will give us a way ahead. God's master plan, if you will, as to what we need to bring to the sanctuary of the true and living God in order to please him so that he might tell us in our worship, our corporate worship, well done. So let me give you what's coming our way in the next few weeks, a little outline of our mini-series of, you know, approaching God. Now, today we're going to talk a little bit about approaching God in authenticity. Next week, we're going to hear from Brother Greg as he's going to give us some very powerful, pointed words that we need to hear. We need to adhere to. We need to listen to God's servant and what the Lord is going to be speaking through him to us so we can live our lives worthy of the calling. So I want you to come next week. Father's Day message. The week after that, we're going to learn about how to approach God in humility as Paul addresses the Lord's Supper. And then we're going to hear about how to approach the Lord in unity. So vitally important. The week after that, we're going to receive instruction about approaching God in power as we understand more about spiritual gifts. And by the way, if you're a Christian, you have at least one spiritual gift to give away to your brothers and sisters. It's a great thing. God has gifted us. And then after that, we're going to be diving into how to approach the God of love in 1 Corinthians 13. You may have read that passage before. Maybe a little bit familiar with it, especially if you've been to a wedding. And then we're going to take a break for a couple of weeks for our youth and anniversary Sundays. And then finally, we're going to uh, wrap up our weeks of this mini-series by uncovering, uh, approaching God in, in, in properly and in order. So this is what's in front of us for the next several weeks. But again, this is the blueprint, I believe, of what we can bring to the sanctuary, what the Lord wants us to bring to the sanctuary so that we can worship him in a way that he would say, I'm pleased. I'm ex- I accept your worship. Now, this entire series can be summed up in Paul's summary of this section. And it says this, but all things should be done decently and in order. Again, corporate worship. You know, we, have, we should be having private worship at home in places, you know, Scripture open, memorizing Scripture, praying. But we're talking here corporate worship. And so that means we need to be here. Corporate worship means together we worship. So you don't want to miss these messages and the service.
as well. But today, as it so often happens, God's word is completely out of step with the culture. Would you agree with that? The nonconformist in me, though, says, most excellent. I'm so glad of that. I'm pretty much someone who's never been assimilated. Even after spending 29 years in the military, I was never assimilated. I'm just kind of like one of those guys. I'm here, and I'm going to do my thing, but I was never one of those sold-out guys to the military. But on the other hand, do we really want to be viewed as suspicious, looked on as outsiders on a continual basis, even hated by the world? Do we really want that? Wait a minute, though. Isn't that what Jesus said when we signed up to follow him? You know, this kind of dynamic that God's people have with the world and its ways did not start with Jesus. You knew that, right? All the way back in Deuteronomy, Moses told his people to make a choice, either God or the world. And here's what Moses said in Deuteronomy 30, 29, or 19 and 20. He says, I call heaven and earth today to, against, as a witness against you today that I have set before you life and death Blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. Loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. This was in the context of should you worship the true and living God or should you worship idols, the false gods that were around in the nation. At the end of Joshua's days, that given, given that godly leader and political leader that he was, he gave a challenge to God's people in Joshua 24, verses 14 and 15. He says this, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it is evil in your eyes, to serve the Lord. Imagine that. If it's evil, he says, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land that you now dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Do you have struggle with the idols in your life? Choose you this day who you will serve. As for me and my house, We serve the Lord. But the truth is, the day that we signed up to follow Jesus, coming to him for salvation, was the day that we would begin to get out of step with the culture around us. See, it takes supernatural strength and enlightened and attuned spiritual ears to listen to the divine drumbeat as the world gets louder and louder and louder, trying to get us to march in step with it. But the disciple of Jesus refuses. Whether the world just happens to agree with God, God's ways, rare though that is, but it does sometimes happen, or radically out of step with God's ways, the Christian follows Jesus. And by definition, that means we are different. So why should it surprise us that God desires, no, demands that we worship him in ways that would not only seem foreign to the world, but would truly be foreign to the world? Where God's word would loudly clash with the world. Well, today is one of those times where God's word clashes loudly with the world. We're going to see In this passage, what goes exactly opposite of the way of the world and would demand that the church go there. And you know that the world tries to demand and tries to lead the church in a certain direction, don't you? For example, you think about love. What does the world define love as? Far different than the way we define love, but how often do we adopt the world's view of love? Radical acceptance is what they say. But today's passage pronounces loud and clear how out of step with the world that the church is with it. For today, we're going to talk about gender identity. It's here in Scripture. 
Now, we will not find the words, the phrase, gender identity in this passage. Or we won't find these words anywhere in the whole counsel of the Word of God. This is a new term that's been, I guess, kind of made up over the last few years, gender identity. But it is all over the Bible. It may not be in those words, but yes. But there's something we need to remember as we get into this passage especially. Let me remind us of one of the ground rules. Remember all the way back when we talked about Genesis in the Bible stories. One of the ground rules was that the Bible was not written to us. It was written for us. And what that means is there's a whole lot of culture and language and things that we need to decipher to understand the truth of God's Word. See, Scripture was written how long ago? Thousands of years ago. It was written in a different language. It was written in a completely different culture, different times. And right before we dive into our passage today, let me give you several words and phrases to look for as we read this passage to kind of let you know what's coming. For example, the word headship and head coverings, long hair, short hair, angels, and glory. Let's keep these words and these phrases in mind as we go through this passage. But now that I've kind of got you lost, more than likely, let's read this passage together. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 2-16. Now I commend you, because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head was shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is a disgraceful thing for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That's why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Are you following this so far? (laughs) Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Huh. Interesting passage of Scripture, you think? See, that's the beauty about going verse by verse or passage by passage. You can't avoid this. When was the last time you heard a sermon preached on this? (laughs) I don't think ever except to be legalistic about things. But there you have it. This is how we together approach God, understanding that the head of women is men and the head of Christ is God. And men must wear short hair and women must wear long hair. Women must wear head coverings and angels are somehow involved. See, easy. It's great. Don't you love the simplicity of God's word? (laughs) <laughs> mm-hmm. But now, as I study this passage, it seems that there's probably no other passage in this letter, or maybe even in the New Testament, where truth and culture are so closely together. And we've got to kind of discern all of this so we can understand the truth of this. See, we can't just pick and choose and label what we want as culture in order to avoid obeying the Lord in this passage. Because there is truth here. There are things that we must do. This is what God tells us. 
For example, how many people have rejected the truth that the head of the woman is the man because it sounds so chauvinistic? I see women saying, "Uh uh-huh, absolutely. (laughs) Or the profound misunderstanding about the nature of Christ being somehow inferior to God the Father. Some people view that because of this passage. And we can't legalistically pick and choose and label what is in this passage and require everybody to do it just because the Bible says so. For example, how many of us have heard or even experienced a a hair length on men in order to go into the sanctuary to worship? I've actually heard of a church in their building off the side of the sanctuary, there's a barbershop. And the men would be inspected. And, if, they, and if, the, if the men did not have a certain length of hair, guess what would happen? They would go into that barbershop, get their hair cut, or they could not attend worship. Why? This passage right here. Or how many have you heard about or maybe experienced that Women, every woman is wearing a hat or some kind of a head covering. Why? Because that's what this passage says, right? Here's what the Bible says. So women need to have head coverings, need to wear hats. These kinds of legalistic and erroneous things are taught and applied when we don't take the time to see what's really going on. No wonder the world looks at us and scoffs, right? Because we don't understand sometimes. But as always, there's so much here, and there's not enough time to unpack it all, unless you want to be with me for a couple hours. And I'm okay with that. But I'm going to try to, to do this. Let's, let's try to be concise, and let's walk through this. Well, in verse 2, Paul is finally happy. I think this is great. He says, I commend you guys. Of all the times, all the way up until this chapter, he was basically just whamming them over and over again. Disunity, immorality, all this kind of stuff. But now he's saying, I commend you. That's a great thing. Kind of brings a smile to the Corinthians' face, I would imagine. He can now commend them because they keep the traditions handed down to him, handed down uh, to them that he passed on to them. Because the traditions of head coverings found in this passage or besides that, let me mention two more traditions that Paul passed on to them. And one is the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11. And we're going to get to that more later, but he says, I received from the Lord this tradition that I'm passing on to you. Then also in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I rec- what I received, I pass on to you as well, which is the teaching of the gospel. These things Paul received from the Lord and other apostles. And because of all this, he was able to pass on what he learned. Now, the cool thing about this and the amazing thing about this is that these traditions, these things were already in place and were practiced by the churches even before Paul wrote this letter. Now, Jesus at this point had been gone back to heaven about 30 years prior to this. And so these things were already in place even before then. And so the point is, is that even after 2,000 years, we're still doing these things. We still believe the gospel. We are still observing the Lord's Supper. And so the the important point I want to make is, is that Paul did not make this up. He didn't make this up out of his own head. These things he received from the Lord and received from others, and he is passing these things on. And so we don't do these things. We don't believe the gospel. We don't, you know... uh, practice the Lord's Supper just because, you know, uh, Paul tells us to. No, these things have been in place almost since the beginning. See, a lot of people believe that Paul just kind of made up the idea that, that Jesus was just a, a, a prophet and, you know, we ought to worship him. He never really wanted us to worship him. That's what a lot of people are saying. Paul didn't make this up. He says, we are to worship the Lord Jesus because of who he is. He is God in the flesh. Paul didn't make it up. And as a good disciple, Paul passed on what he learned. And by the way, passing on what Jesus taught us is good discipleship. Is it not? An effective disciple maker is not a person who says and and, and does things that are, are unique and like no one has ever heard these things before. Rather, an effective disciple maker has one goal, teaching his or her disciple 
to obey the Lord in everything that he has taught us. Is that not what the Great Commission is? I want you to go and teach others everything to obey everything that I've taught you. That's what disciple making is all about. And that's what Paul did as a disciple. He passed on many of these things that he learned already. Now, in verses 3 to 7, Paul addresses the issue of headship. Now, here's a, a controversial topic, headship here. And here is the very heart, I believe, of what Paul was driving at in this passage. Men and women are distinct. That's the heart of the issue. If you get nothing else, get this. Men and women are distinct. That's a no-brainer, is it? It's a no-brainer. We all know this. But the culture of the day kind of says differently. God inspired Paul to to instruct the Corinthian believers that they are to express themselves according to their distinctiveness. Men are men, women are women, and we are to conduct ourselves in accordance with our distinctiveness. In the all-important matters of prayer and prophesying, a man is to do these things with his head uncovered. And a woman is to do these things with her head covered. So what is going on here? What does it mean? What's, what's, What's happening here? Well, the foundation is found in who is the head of whom. Okay, guys, stay with me on this, okay? The head or the source of every born-again man is Christ. That's what this passage says. The head or source of a woman is the man, and the head or source of Christ is God. That, again, that's what the passage says. And for the sake of time, let me just kind of sum up the big argument that's going on nowadays in the theological circles. There's a huge discussion about what head or headship means. And the best sense I can make of this is headship here does not mean authority. It means source. Source, where it came from, source. A born-again man has received life or is sourced in Christ. The source of a woman is the man. Now, that sounds really, really weird, doesn't it, ladies? But it will make sense as we unpack it, okay? But where we have to be very careful is where he's talking about here, the head of Christ is God, or the source of Christ is God. And as we know, and and I think sometimes we get sloppy in our understanding of the Trinity. I really do. Because as we know, the second person of the Trinity is the Son. We know this. And God... The Father is the first person in the Trinity, and the third person in the Trinity is the Holy Spirit, right? We're all in the same sheet of music here with this. But now, Paul refers to the second person of the Trinity as Christ, and that is New Testament speak for Messiah. And this is vital we understand this. When the second person of the Trinity left heaven and was born into Mary... He became the Messiah, the Christ. And it was the Father who sent him. Now, as human, Jesus did not give himself life. Who gave himself life? Who gave him life? It was God the Father who gave him life. Okay? And Jesus, the Messiah, was sent by the Father. Okay? See, we need to refer to Jesus as the God-man as often as we can, so that we can gain a more complete understanding of who he is. For example, how many times have we referred to God dying on the cross? Oftentimes we say that, don't we? But did the Father, did God die on the cross? How can the creator who doesn't die, who can't die, die on a cross? God the Father did not die on the cross. The God-man, Jesus, the Messiah, died on the cross. You see the distinctiveness? See the difference? See the difference? Does that make sense? Yes? No? Okay. Now, Paul goes on and refers to a man who prays with his head covers, his head covered, dishonors his head, which is his source, and therefore dishonors Christ. As Paul says in verse 7, the man is the image and the glory of God. As man, he is to reflect the glory of God. 
and his reflection of the glory of God honors him. In other words, men have a distinct role to play in the corporate gathering. Distinct role. And how he is to glorify and honor God is distinct from the way women worship the Lord. Well, what about the woman? Now, the ESV uses the word wife here, but so many other versions have the word woman here, and I think it's more inclusive, and I think that's the way to go about it here. Paul tells the Corinthians that when a woman prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, that dishonors the Lord. For the woman is the glory of man. Now, I'm not a woman, last time I checked, but I'm sure that this statement is making at least some of my sisters here pretty uncomfortable. Right? (laughs) Thinking, I see some eyes here. But hold the thought. Hold the thought. Because we're going to, hopefully it will make sense in a minute. What is Paul getting at? Simply, there is a distinction. Here's the bottom line. There is a distinction between women and men. Again, distinction. And that's what Paul's driving at here. Women, because of who they are, they are to express their worship, praying and prophesying differently than men. That's Paul's point. In other words, God sees men and women differently. He commands that men and women express their differences in a culturally appropriate manner, distinct manner, as we worship together. We're we're different, and we do things differently. And we're going to talk about how countercultural that really is in a minute. But for right now, let me say that God declares whether a person is male or female. God is the one that does that. God tells us that's what our gender is. Would you agree? It doesn't come from within us, and I'll explain more about that in a minute. And God expects that a male worship him differently than a female does. Paul goes on to appeal to the woman with what is a most important cultural practice now, he says. The shame and honor culture is what was going on, what was huge there. And that's why he's talking about it. It's shameful, it's disgraceful for a woman to have short hair, etc. Now, people in the first century, and I've said this before, but it bears repeating, people in the first century would rather die, literally, than be put to shame. It's huge. It was a huge deal back then. And think social media in our country. It's getting more and more like that. Because what happens when somebody puts something out on social media that everybody disagrees with profoundly? Sometimes people actually hurt themselves. You've heard the stories. You know what I'm talking about. Other times they actually change their position just so they won't appear to be unpopular. Think shame and honor culture as being like in the first century, like, you know, peer pressure on steroids. Just hugely, hugely important there. And so Paul here is referring how shameful it is for a woman to worship the same way a man does. If a woman decides to to not have a head covering on, it's different than the way a man worships. And And he says, that's wrong attitude. That's the wrong way to go about it. A woman must worship differently than men. A man is not to cover his head. But it is absolutely unthinkable for a woman to worship the way a man does, says Paul. If she will not cover her head, and this was their culturally accepted practice, then she may as well go all the way and cut her hair short or even shave it off. And the woman says, every woman in that church would say, ain't no way. They're revolt, it's a revulsion to them. It's a universal outrage. But the honor and shame of this headship thing goes all the way back to Genesis where Paul makes things clear in these verses through 8 to 13. And here's where the issue of headship is described as source will make sense. Remember what happened when God created Eve. And we know that Adam was created from the dust of the ground, right? And then God looked around and he says, there's something not good about my creation. And what was that something not good? is that it was not good that man should be alone. And so what did God do? He put Adam into a deep sleep, right? And what did he do? He took a rib from Adam, fashioned her into, or fashioned one into a wife, a woman, and made him, or made her, and brought her to Adam. 
And Adam was very pleased. And so, where did the woman come from? Did the woman come from the dust or come from Adam? Came from Adam. And that's what Paul's talking about. The source of the woman, the original woman, came from Adam. But now, lest we think that a woman's place is one of inferiority, because remember what, what God says, you know, I will make a helper suitable for the man. And, and a, lot of, a lot of women think, well, I'm only a helper. I'm, I'm inferior to, to a man, to a husband. God also describes himself as a helper. Did you know that? He says, I am your helper. And the last time I checked, God is not inferior to us. It's the same words used there. So again, how did God create woman? Again, the first man was not made from woman. What was the purpose for God creating the woman? The one called by God to be a helper. Of course, God is talking here in Genesis about the first married couple. And that was literally a match made in heaven. So what's going on? When we all recognize God as a true object of worship, and men and women... But women especially properly express their worship in a culturally appropriate way. Guess what happens? We gain witnesses. And who are those witnesses? Unfallen angels. Angels right now are here. Did you know that? Angels are witnessing how we are worshiping. And how especially Women are worshiping. No pressure, ladies. They're watching and seeing how you worship and how we worship, how we worship the same God that they worship on a regular basis. Have you ever longed for a heavenly visitation? Have you ever longed to be able to see an angel? What would happen if we did that? I'd fall on my face. But angels are here right now, worshiping with us to the Father, to God. They're observing us. That's what Paul is telling us in this passage. But again, notice what they're witnessing here. As they're worshiping, they're also witnessing. They're witnessing how we worship. And women are to worship in culturally appropriate ways, distinct from men. But now, lest we think that men and women are so distinct in our worship, we need to think again. We are different, right? We are distinct from one another. But we are interdependent on one another. Notice how Paul reminds the Corinthians and us that, of how we're to obey the first command that God gave us. What was the first commandment God gave us? Be fruitful, multiply. Guess what's needed to be fruitful and multiply? Men and women. We've got to come together on this to be fruitful and multiply. Obviously, in the context of marriage. But now, whereas the first woman came from man, now every other man comes from woman, comes through woman. That's how interdependent we are now upon one another. But as we know, God is overall, all things come from Him. And now Paul, having appealed to the written word of God, which is the best place to stand regarding all matters of truth, Paul now turns to nature and the Corinthians' own conscience in verses 13 to 16. In asking the question whether it's proper for a woman to, again, worship the way a man does, he directs her attention to the way God has wired men and women regarding to the symbol called hair length. Again, we need to keep in mind the culture which was much more hair conscious than it is today. In the first century, hair was used by women, oftentimes as an allurement for men. True enough is it now, but it was much more so even back then. And several authors I consulted said that when a woman wore her hair down, that meant to the community, that meant to men that she was available. And that plays into a principle that we're going to talk about in a second that, that directly applies to today. Now, Paul's appeal to nature was, again, wrapped in the honor-shame practice. And it was simply this. 
In their culture, a man having long hair was shameful. And a woman having short hair was shameful. That's the way they viewed life. But on the other hand, a woman's long hair was her glory in that culture. The longer, the better. And it brought her honor. I'm reminded of 1 Peter 3. You may have read 1 Peter 3. He's talking about how, how Peter, who was married and doubtless also observed the grooming habits of, her, of his wife, he would say this, Do not let, ladies, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of your hair, putting on gold, jewelry, clothing, and wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight very precious. See, Peter acknowledged that a woman's long hair can become an object where it can draw attention to her outward beauty. But the real beauty, Paul or Peter says, comes from within. A gentle and quiet spirit in God's sight is very precious, ladies. And finally, Paul mentions he doesn't want to argue about this. In the last verse, that's kind of what he's driving at there. So what does this extremely valuable passage have to do with us approaching corporately the true and living God authentically in a way that pleases him? Let me give you a couple of points. First, the truth of a person's gender is assigned by God. It's not our own ideas. It is God's giving it to us. God places that knowledge within us. And here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. And I would submit that includes our gender as well. See, men are men. Why? Because God says so. Women are women. Why? Because God says so. It has nothing to do with how I feel about myself. It has nothing to do with how you feel about yourself or anybody. And when we go down that path, that's when trouble begins. That's why we have the issues that we have. Men express themselves differently in worship than women do. In our culture, men typically are not as expressive as women. Would you agree, guys? We're kind of reserved. Women are much more expressive in their worship, raising hands, etc., and all that kind of thing. Men do too at times, but women much more so. They can feel deeper than we can. So we're not to expect that we are all worshiping in the same way with the same expressiveness. Now, along those lines, Paul says here that men and women are to express worship in different ways that are culturally appropriate. And some of that involves what one wears. For example, even with all the popularity about transgender and about cross-dressing, that is inappropriate for men to come dress that way to corporate worship. Now, it's a no-brainer. I mean, none of us does that here. But how many churches allow that? It happens, and that is indeed sad. Again, because we have decided what's right. We have chosen to reject God, and we've chosen to reject and, and, of his ways, and we've chosen to say, I'm going to do my own thing. And because of that, cross-dressing and transgender stuff is with us, unfortunately. And this, though, Paul says, basically is out of the natural order of things. And Paul alludes, and I'll just kind of put this together. Judge for yourself. Does not nature teach you that it is inappropriate for a man to wear that which pertains to a woman and a woman to wear that which pertains to a man? And by the way, that's recorded in Scripture. You knew that, right? In Leviticus or Deuteronomy 22, he says, A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. So, this thing like, uh, what, what do you call it, the, uh, the, the drag queen story hour or whatever, that's an abomination. It's not entertainment. It's an abomination to the Lord. No wonder we have God's judgments kind of waiting because of things like this. In short, one of our culturally appropriate ways of men worshiping in a way that pleases the Lord is being dressed as men when we come to worship. 
So now let's apply this to women. Now I'm about ready to walk into some dangerous ground. I know it. I know it. But bear with me on this. And by the way, I checked with Kitty on this, okay? So, so I'm not out in here on the dark, okay? Uh, and also I've had some experience with, with other things, uh, asking women questions, etc. But let me bring to the table what seems to be a universal desire of women of every age in our culture. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm open to be corrected. Okay, I've been wrong at least once in my life. So help me. If this is wrong, let me know. And here's in the form of a question, usually directed at men. And the girl is always asking or oftentimes asking, do you notice me? Am I pretty? Ladies, am I right? Is that, is that right? Now, it begins with their dads, though. If there's a healthy relationship with their dad, then they know what to look for in a husband. But if the relationship with dad is really bad, oftentimes the girl tries to go and find a substitute for their father. And that's why girls have the problems that they have with, and oftentimes. But why do I say this? Well, look at all the cosmetics that are sold, for example. Now, I don't think that you ladies, now this is my own opinion, but I don't think you ladies get all dressed up and and mascara and all that kind of stuff because you want to impress one another, right? Usually it's because you want to attract guys. Some of you, many of you, I would think. And what about the clothing that many girls and women wear? You know, is that, you know, sometimes is that a way of saying, you know, you know, I, I want to be noticed. Now, as we know, there are cultural norms which mark the boundaries between what's appropriate and what's not appropriate for dress, for ladies. When Kitty was in school, she was in this class full of ladies, and the professor basically said to, to, to the students, there are three ways that women dress. They dress this way, ballroom, which is very, very, you know, yeah, elegant, all that. And then dress business or dress bimbo. And bimbo is definitely inappropriate for, for this. Now, I bring this up here because I see a direct application of the way women are often utilized in wearing their hair in the first century and how women wear their clothing here in the 21st century. What was a glory to them was often turned into a sexual allurement to, women, to men back in the first century. And could it be that's the way that some girls, women, dress today as an allurement to men? Could it be that they're asking in a nonverbal way, do you notice me? Am I pretty? And so with both men and women, to include youth, the way we come together in worship is to be sure that what we wear and how we wear it does not distract from the corporate worship of the Lord. And that really is the bottom line point here. When we come, let's not distract one another from how we wear our clothing and what we're doing. Paul said that head covering was to be used as a symbol of authority. It was also used to cover up what was often an allurement to men. One commentator made this statement. A way for women to honor men is to dress modestly. And men, we need to watch what we wear as well. And so as we come together on Sunday mornings, or whenever we do, we come together as men. We come together as women. Every one of us is made in the image of God. And God has declared every one of us to either be male or female. There is no in-between. There are no 65,000 genders or whatever you want to call it. Two, that's what God says. Let's worship the Lord fully embracing our gender distinctiveness because we are committed to the truth that God made us this way. He told us what our gender is. We are to be committed to that. He declared us as male or female. We're not allowed to suppress this truth by rejecting his pronouncement of who he has declared us to be. May we come together conducting ourselves with the authenticity that God desires us to have in his presence before one another. And finally, let's be ready for the battle in the culture. Now, we're not to be culture warriors, but the culture does attack us. 
And that includes all issues of gender. And may we stand ready before the world that literally hates God and his ways to speak the truth about gender. And as we know, a huge part of the culture war involves all the gender issues of our day. And the following quote, and we'll close with this, it's it's, uh, popularly attributed to Martin Luther. And uh, he tells us about the battle that lies and the battle that we are to engage in as spiritual warriors. And here's what he says. If I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, no matter how loudly I may be professing Christianity. Where the battle rages, the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady in all the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace to him if he flinches at that point. We must proclaim the truth that God has declared there, is, there are two genders. There's male, there's female, and he's the one that told us. And we stick to his assessment. Let's pray. Father, this was a very strange passage to our ears. But this is truth nonetheless. Lord, you told us who we are in your word. And we, as your people, accept it. Wholeheartedly, we embrace it. We embrace all the distinctiveness, all the wonders, all the, as it were, the, the, the uniqueness of, of men, of ourselves as men and of women. And Lord, we don't want to blur, to blur the lines. Lord, we want to express masculinity. We want to express femininity in all of its gloriousness, in all the ways that you have uh, given it to us. We thank you, Lord. Help us, Lord, to worship authentically. Help us, Lord, to, to worship you as you have declared us to be. So, Lord, we thank you for this time as we uh, sing our final song, as we give. Lord, we just, we just want to give you thanks for right now for this time, uh, for the way that you treat us far more than we deserve, far better than we deserve. Thank you for making us in your image that we can truly corporately worship and we can give you the worship that you accept. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.